<coughs> so you don't yet have Torah per se. You don't have the words that we study and the directly revealed will of Hashem, but we have an embodiment of that will. We have an encapsulation of that will. We have a world and nature, physical laws, chemical laws, which are based on the logic of a Kodesh Baruch as it's contained in the Torah, which is the approximation of a Kodesh Baruch as well. And it's, it, it, to, to highlight the shift, or the pre-shift before our Sinai, which is about 2,000 years away, 300 years away, it's actually called something different before it's called Torah. At Shavuos, it gets the word Torah, it gets the moniker of Torah. Torah is here in Moshe. Before Moshe, there's no Torah. Yet our Abos intuited the will of Hashem. The will of Hashem pre-existed in Moshe, and it wasn't called Torah. So it's a fascinating name change, and name change is not just about people, but about Torah as well, signal transitions. Avram transitions to Abraham. Yaakov transitions to Yisrael. So name changes always transformative. So the Pasuk in Mishle has a very interesting word. It doesn't have a direct English translation. Source number Dalit, Vahayet Esro Amon. I was an Amon. Amon comes from the word Imon, to nurse, to cultivate, to rear, to mentor. It has that educational, nursing, developmental ring to it. I was a nurse or a mentor in our terms. And the memory is playing off of this Pasuk, source number Hey, quotes an earlier Pasuk in Mishle, Hashem Mechachma, source Gimel Yasad Aretz, through his wisdom he established the earth, and Chachma doesn't mean God's wisdom, but a Kodesh Baruch Hashanah. Playing off of that word Amon, in source number Hey, the Eim Tachachma Elatara, the Chachma, which was the template of this world, is Tarah, Umashma, what was the name of this wisdom of Hashem that then became translated into the world we live in, Amon, Shinemor Beitzlo Amon. Vulanikar is Torah, Ashenit Nisina. And then 2,500 years later, it actually becomes Torah. Because Torah means teaching and instruction and in their way of life and Torah. So before people are lessened in Torah, Torah still is implanted into our world, but it cultivates the same way that a teacher teaches frontally, and a nurse just cultivates and rears and provides the setting, the background, and the grounds for our growth, rather than the direct forming and molding of our character. So Torah is molding our character, but nature is the grounds in which we grow and develop this world which we live in, which our character which our character develops. Now, what are the ramifications of this reality? How does this change our experience? How does this impact the way we study Torah, the way we review Torah? Seeing this world out there which seems dissonant from Torah, unrelated to Torah, we don't see the letters, we don't see the words, yet realizing that every part of this world we live in is hewn or carved from the wisdom of our Kodesh Baruch who is captured in time. So there's a few things to think about. Number one, um, without Torah, the world is vacant because it's missing its core, it's missing its blueprints, it's missing its illogic. And by accepting Torah, which may seem to you and I to be a very particularistic experience, and by studying Torah, which is very particularistic, with the Jewish people, we're the only nation that has to study Torah. It's a parochial moment rather than an international moment. By accepting the Torah, we are providing a world service. We are bringing the wisdom of God in a direct and regional form down to the world, which is built on the logic of Torah. And that's how the Medrash refers to the Jewish people as friends of humanity. It's based on a Pasuk and Shir Hashirim. Pasuk and Shir Hashirim source tests. I've compared you, my, my, my wife, my lover, my friend, I've compared you, of all things, to the cheeks of pirate horses, but it's a little bit strange. The horses look very, very attractive and warfare. But either way, we're called a friend. Now, in Shir Hashirim, the little meaning is we're friends with the Kodesh Baruch with the Rayan, he's the devil. But Chazal see this as a reference to a larger, more global friendship. 
source number Yud, Rabbanan Amri, Vayasaki Olami. You are the friend of humanity. Why are we the friend of humanity? Shekibu Tarasi, because you accepted my Torah. Shekibu Lo Kibluha, had you not accepted the Torah, Hayisi Machazir Olami, Letau The world would have been returned to null and void, to emptiness, to vacancy. So this world is patterned after Akhmatifarmu's wisdom, and by actually studying that wisdom, then I'm fusing the wisdom of HaKadosh Baruch Hu directly revealed terms and bringing Hashem more palpably into my world and providing a public service, not just a particularistic national experience of study that revealed word that Hashem designated to the Jewish people. And some of you may hear the very famous Rashi and Barashas, Yom Hashishi. Why is Yom Hashishi referred to with the extra way? Because even though to the naked eye it appeared that the material construction had culminated on the sixth day, without a spiritual substrate, that material construction went unfolded. So even though the sixth day was the signal end of creation, there was a subsequent sixth day upon which creation was contingent. Not the sixth day of creation, but the sixth day of Sivan. Yom Hashishi. It appeared to end on the sixth, but it only completed the cycle on the Hashishi, on the next sixth, which was the sixth day of Sivan. And this leads to a corollary, that if Torah wouldn't be studied, then the world would collapse. This based on the Gemara Nidaran, source number Yudal, it's Amar Bliyas, Abidola Torah, Shalmari Paralos, Amar Shalai Barak. So you can interpret the statement that without Torah the world would collapse in many different ways. In Velazhin, they took this very, very literally. In Velazhin, they actually handed out shifts. So Tamidim were assigned to learn the graveyard shift from 3 to 4, and the shift from 5 to 6. Because Velazhin took it as their personal honor, their personal duty to study Torah every single moment in the Velazhin of Ace Matters because they feared world apocalypse. Now, you can take it in a more broader sense. If Torah wouldn't be studied at any moment, there are time zones where we're going to see other people studying Torah. Even if you don't mark the clock and see are people studying Torah at this point, is this a world of Torah? And this is what the Haredi ideology is built upon, and we have our ideology as well. No one in this room can deny the state. The question is balance. The question is proportion. The question is in the modern era. How do we distill our multiple responsibilities? But a Haredi, when asked, why don't you serve in the army, will correctly respond, I am doing more, not just for the state of Israel, but for humanity. My studying Suez, not whatever the Dathiyami Kofimo phase, my studying Suez for phase. If it's not for my studying this page of Gemara, the world will collapse. And you can't disagree with that, which is people, people that subscribe to a different approach, believe that the distillation and the proportions in the modern world, even multiple responsibilities and duties, perhaps should be a little bit different. But this is not a Haredi Gemara. This is a Gemara, as far as I can check, the Gemara that I want to increase to, everyone signed up for. So this is one impact or one consequence of seeing the world as a as pattern after time. Another consequence, also fascinating, is that if the world is patterned after Torah, then it is axiologically true that you can achieve every single discipline and knowledge in every single discipline through the pure study of Torah. Because everything in this world has been patterned after Torah. So in Berkeley's statement, Torah can serve as a portal to everything. So you want to study astronomy, you can achieve it through Torah. If you want to study biology, you can achieve it through Torah. If you want to study and to a degree, that's probably how the Vilna God access all that knowledge. 
It doesn't appear that the Vilnagon was too involved in frontal study. It's not clear. There's a letter from his father that says he doesn't want him to study pharmacology because he may become a pharmacist. It's not clear if it's a professional concern, he doesn't want to be a pharmacist. No, no himself intended a pharmacist. The Vilnagon doesn't become a pharmacist. It makes a pretty safe, uh, pretty safe statement. But it was the professional duties or the frontal study. But clearly, Bill, you know, most of us in this room, all of us in this room, probably have little chance of achieving biology through the study of theory. We have to study biology from experts. We have to study science from experts. We have to study literature from experts. Whatever we want to study. But in theory, as the Gemara says, and the mission says in Abel, so it's never your face, then Baba Gomer, Hafachba, Hafachba, the Kulaba. Just keep turning Torah upside down as if you have a hoe or a shovel, and you keep shoveling the Torah and turning it upside down and thinking. And in theory, if you knew Torah well enough and you had the methodological tools, again, this is axiologically incontrovertible. There cannot be any aspect of knowledge that Torah, at least the hard sciences, that is inaccessible through Torah because it's the blueprint. So the same people looking at a blueprint is to be able to then understand how the building is fashioned. Okay? Just because it's a synthesis Torah. I saw a cute little joke I heard a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, what happened that some, some person wanted to build a house. So they took this very literally. So he went to the Rosh Hashiva and he said, could you please engineer a house for me? So he went through and he prepared all the designs because he was able to achieve engineering and architectural um, uh, 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 provision through studying Torah. And he gave the blueprints. And he took the blueprints to an architect. And the architect said, great, it seems like it would work. So they built the house. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the Rosh Hashiva planned the house. And all of a sudden, they came, they were about to knock him in the sizzle, and the door, everyone was gathered for the ceremony, and knocked him in the sizzle, and the whole house fell apart. So he went back to the Russian shooter, he said, what do you mean? I thought you designed a house. He said, oh, you found the Rikiv Avery, you found the steer of Rikiv Avery. You found the steer up. So the whole house fell apart. So it's an insider's club. You get it, you get it. It's a great, it's a great life. You found the Rikiv Avery, that's why the house fell. Anyway, so that's the second, uh, the second corollary. And we actually have documentation of this well before the Vilna Gaon. Shmuel knew more, presumably, about the planets than Galileo or Copernicus. Now, why he didn't reveal to others is anyone's guess. But Shmuel said, Amr Shmuel, not our Shmuel, or Amr Shmuel Baraba, to Medrashim Tehillim, Yada Anab B'Shvila Derekia, I can navigate the roadways of heaven, astronomy, Kishvila Din Arda. I was just as familiar with the roadways of heaven as I am with the roadways of Narda. Why did he say the Hubble telescope? No. Is he a Copernican science? No. Why? Through investing in the wisdom of HaKadosh Baruch Hussara, mitocha mashayesh v'shachim. He was able to study and to intuit, again, someone of Shmuel's caliber, someone of Romanov's caliber. But again, those who are opposed to studying secular knowledge will quote this Gemara. It's a little disingenuous because if you do value achieving either instrumentally or inherently broader knowledge, if you live over dog, you can make that claim. Most mere mortals would have a difficult time justifying our achieve geometry through studying Bilkovskidish. It's very far fetched. But it is an interesting mind experiment. Should we be studying anything other than the group or other than the source? The third corollary is that we'd expect to see in the world of nature, we expect to see. A, a, a glimmer, a mirror image of a Kurdish Baruch's tower. That doesn't mean I'm going to uh, walk through a forest and see him say everything unfolding, or walk through, or walk through an ocean and see a Hushabas unfolding, but I should be able to trace common common trends in nature that are similar to Tara rather than incongruous to Tara. And this is a Biochanan statement, source number, your darling. I'm a Biochanan, the Tara, 
Darwin convinced us that nature is driven by a very violent engine of survival of the fittest, and only the strong can survive in our behavior that leads to social Darwinism and eugenics. And this is a different view of nature. You look at nature, you're supposed to see as the many as, as the 16th century people called the peaceable kingdom, harmony, peace, morality. So it's a very different view of our world of nature. But it should reflect the Torah, it shouldn't be in Congress. So that's the first time the Torah shifted. It shifted from something abstract to something, I wouldn't say worldly, because human beings couldn't study it directly. They could intuit it, they could view it, they could discover Hashem's logic through nature. And because we see it as the blueprint of our world, then the study of Torah is essential, it's vital to the sustainability of our world, and the world should reflect the wisdom of Torah. The next shift is the great shift. And that's the shift that's year 2448, when the actual word of Akash Baruch was delivered in the human, coherent human terms. We didn't have to intuit it from nature. We didn't have to try to find Akash Baruch looking out at us from the beer of the Lekas, as the Rambam says, as Meder says. But Hashem delivered his word to us. And it was a very jarring and, say, violent experience. It was a contested experience because you had a bank of wisdom that was meant to be transcendent, that was meant to be heavenly, being delivered to human community. And this is not something which was taken um, easily in the courts of heaven. And the passage that conveys this is a passage in Salafat, where we turn to this parak in Hashem at various stages, which is a parak about Hansina. But in parak Salafat, there's a gloss of Hansina, there's a gloss of Matantar. And in parak Salafat, there's someone who's Alita Lamaron, so he's ascending to the to the upper tiers of heaven, Alita Lamarom, Shavita Shevi. That's very, very bellicose. Shavita Shevi means he's taken the captive. All of a sudden now, this isn't so harmonious. The cars are being delivered, with the angels chanting, and the bells whistling. There's some captivity taking place, and every captive moment is the product of some encounter, some violent, not violent encounter, but contested encounter. So what's happening? So the matter spills in the blanks. The angels didn't want to release Torah. Why should Torah be delivered to frail and limited human beings? It should be it should be the province of heaven, where life is perfect, where angels are stellar, where angels are immaculate. The Chendamat of Torah, so several things. One matter is Shabbat and Shabbat leaving Darbasinai, Hechira Malachim Edayim of Nechem and Shabbat. Olamnayu Lachashatim and Torah Shabbayim. Does it make sense for you to give power from Shemayim, Anukidoshim, Bitaharim? And basically the same contested delivery is described in Shabbos Pechaz, maybe more familiar to most of us, I'm sure of a lady. Why is there a human being walking amongst us, traveling amongst us? Now what's fascinating about these two accounts of the argument in heaven, the disputation in heaven, but when the Torah should be delivered, is what's the conclusion? How does Hashem answer? Let's eavesdrop on a Kodesh Baruch's reply to the Malachim, and we'll get a deeper understanding of Torah's functions. Because Hashem has to give an answer. As you say in Shiva, it's a great alchemy. The Malachim are right. Why should Torah be delivered? And Hashem is forced to give an answer 
And that answer will lay the seeds of, well, oh, now we know why it should be with the paradox, because this is one of the design functions of power to accomplish this, to accomplish that. So the Medrash, source number base, Hashem's justification, they truncated the citations, I'll just quote it by heart. Part of it is, he says, second line from the bottom source base. Ain't a is You know why I can't deliver power to you? Or solely to you, Malachim? You don't have children. I don't think it just means children. I think it means creativity. Angels, by definition, aren't creative. They don't possess a will of their own. They can't create new angels or mere extension of Hamish Barbu. Hamish Barbu wants us to be created in power. He delivers a template. I'll talk about this a little bit in a few hours about partnership about that. And he wants us to create models, not just to uncover models. The flow of Tarashim Alpeh is not just to recover the one unitary truth that was lost, but to try to recover as many models of those that are required in binary. Shintol Moshe's Mutter and Zasa, in ways that the human mind can't understand, because we think binary is either day or night for us, but for Hashem it's Yosir, Aravarech Hashem, Osir Shalom, Aravarech So every truth that the Gemara raises is another nugget of the divine wisdom. We can only practice one approach because we're limited to be binary human beings, not just in the way we think, where you practice. We don't make Yiddish one way, think we live one way, put on feeling one way, put on feeling one manner. But conceptually, every position in chess, every valid position that wasn't rejected, represents another chip in that broad, divine processor of a Kurdish wisdom. And that's why the world of analytics is so different from the world of homophobic edicts. Halakha is like a funnel. You want to try to funnel out all the positions to get to the most dominant one. This is a side position. This is just the Tosfus root. This is just the Tosfus Whereas Lundus is a, it's a reverse funnel. You're trying, to, you're trying to grab as many as like building a network. Oh, there's a Tosfus root that says something really different. Let's hunt it down, even though it may be a minor reshots. It's you very few people who are able to be both Tosfus and London for that reason, because it's different mental processing. Your mind works differently. Rav Lichtenstein was not a posse. The Rav was not a posse. Ravaj Yosef was not the ultimate Lamba, who was an incredible posse. You don't really hear too much from us, because your mind is trained to work in one way, not in two ways. It's simply part of it. Usher is probably a little above. He's a very fascinating mind, because he's a little of each. So in this matters, the reason we receive the Torah is because we're created in the angels or not. Then there's a second part of the Medrash that I've truncated, in which we receive the Torah because we die, and we get sick, and we get mitzvah, and we get illness. And Hashem wants the Torah to perfect the human condition. And perfecting the human condition is only appropriate, only suitable for people who accept imperfection, or live through imperfection. So that's the second part of the sentence that I truncated. The Gemara in Shabbos has a different response of our Torah. Why am I delivering Torah to the human community? What? will be their unique experience of power that you can't replicate, you can't simulate. He tells them, I'm going to find a source number given. Okay? He tells, he asks the angels, what is it? Oh, actually, Hashem asks Moshe to defend it. But either way, Moshe quotes the Pasuk, source number Gimel, second line from the bottom. So then Hashem turns to the angels and says, did you work in Egypt? Were you slaves in Egypt? And they say, well, not we're in heaven. And Hashem is essentially telling the angels that there's something called history. And history is a uniquely human experience. And it has an inception, it has a terminus. And the arc that leads from the inception to the terminus we call redemption. And we're authors of redemption. And Torah is the fuel by which we author redemption. One of it. 
and angels don't have sorrow for the spirits, they don't have any time. And what's tarot? It's, it's like a quark in Nigeria. Tarot to be one of those historical propellers. And there's a historical context into which Torah is inserted, and it will change with history as history itself shifts. So I find this remark very resonant. Because angels, you don't have history. You don't go to Egypt, you don't get redeemed from Egypt, liberty, politics, nationhood, peoplehood, land, travel. You don't experience that, so Torah will not hit that frequency in your experience and have to deliver to people who will undergo historical evolution, will undergo historical change. So this is the moment in which Tara was transmuted from a celestial corpus of knowledge. It was embodied 2,500 years earlier when the world was created. We couldn't study it as a text. We couldn't study the words. Now, 2,500 years later, there is a system revealed word we can study after the part of the Now, because of that, let me just highlight very quickly to secondary elements of modern So there's one more simple sense of words obviously folding to one another. That's why, despite Shavuos being a very, very national experience, the day Hashem selected us, the day Hashem took us as this kala, Harsin and the Chuppah, and we'll read about this in a very famous Rashi and Bezosah, Hashem, Nisi and Aibai, remember witnessing delivering a one and a half hour long sikha, Shavuos night, on the difference between Lissinai and Nisinai. Lissinai means that Hashem came to Hashinai to point to Ramnehu. Missinai, as Rashi says, Hashem came to greet us from Sinai the way Hashem said we come to greet the Kaaba. Hashem walked down from the hook and said, let me take you up to Harsinai. Let's think basically Rashi took an hour and a half to say that. As a pick of an hour, I have to say everything else. Lissinai and Missinai, I'm sorry, it's like 10.30. It's getting shorter by the moment. Lissinai and Missinai. But Hashem Missinai Ba, the passage I just mentioned, but he's not just coming from Arsina, he's coming from a lot of different quadrants. Zarath Miseir Lama, he comes from Seir, and Harpar, he comes from some cryptic location called Harparam. So Hashem is coming at us in different locations. There's, there's a multi-quadrant, a multi-zone arrival. So Chazal take this to mean, the source of Echarabba, the Tchila Nigla Esav, Hashem offered the Torah to Esav. They refused, he offered the Torah to the Arabs. They refused. Now keep in mind, this matter doesn't mean that had Asa accepted the Torah, we wouldn't have been chosen. It would have been delivered to them in addition. So on the variety, some other form, perhaps, like we would have been displaced. And they said, say, I'll take it. We had been the chosen people. It was a covenant. It had been designated. It just would have been more directly available to them. And even though they refused to be at our Sinai, it still was available according to the Medrash. Medrash in source number of Av, of course, the Pasuk, again, from Samachas, from Advasaros, Sabarab, there's like a lot of armies there in Sinai. Who are the armies? Akadash Baruch Hu Yisbar Shemot Bikvirotam. Yishayama, the people are called Nechlach L'Shiva Kolos. The voice of Hashem was split to seven. Again, don't ask me to describe this to you, because we're trying to describe something other than human experience, like describe it other than our Kadosh. Um Yishiva L'Shivim, and then it's further subdivided from 70 to 70, Shoshivim Umas. So essentially, at that very moment, power was available in every single language. As it was, by the way, when Moshe summarizes the Torah, Ha'ol Moshe, Pe'eres HaTarazel, what does Rashi say, Vishen and Moshe, as it was when Yeshua writes the Torah, we get to Gilgal. So we're still, we live so far removed in history that it's almost difficult for us to imagine non-Jews studying Torah in mass. But that was the original plan, and that will be, at some level, the return to Well, they will not necessarily study Torah the same way we do, but will be more exposed 
gives wisdom and works for us to its divine code. Okay, but let's jump back because I fear that we may miss some of the later shifts. I want to talk a little bit about Parish of Alpha, but if we have some time, we'll circle back. So, so far, we've discussed the two shifts in Tara you probably least like to identify as a shift. One, because no one would do it. Two, because it seems like the origin of its real issues. Mom and I see that. Now let's get to real shifts. Now let's now I have to earn my money. Now I've got to justify the title. When does Tara actually shift? When do people study it differently? So the first shift, which goes a little bit under the radar, is when Ezra returns and Nehemiah returns. And again, as this is an English year, so I assume most of us have had the great pleasure of growing up in Gullis, so our, our, our processors are Gullis-oriented, and we sometimes take it for granted. But you can't imagine how apocalyptic it was to lose temple, to lose amygdala, to lose monarchy, to lose statehood, to lose everything. Wake up the day after Tishabab, but the first place of British is destroyed, the whole world is torn asunder. You can't imagine in Kippur, because in Kippur is fixated upon the place of Mikdash, where he was trying to restore belief in Kippur. Mikveh Yisrael Hashem, Moshiach Be'i Yisrael. It's not about rituals, it's not about ceremonies, it's not about axes and sheep and goats. It's about a Kaddish Barfum. Mikdash and Kaddish Barfum, the Kaddish Barfum. So they're coming back after a, a complete collapse. And it wasn't just religion that collapsed, but it was identity. What, what goes into forging your identity? So far, it's very individualistic, but that is much more collective. I'm a Jew who lives in Israel. This is my king. This is my state. My father served in the army. All those elements of identity that are national fell apart. And one of the aspects that fall apart was language. People stopped speaking Hebrew. Mordechai is a Persian name, and Mordechai's name captures the ambivalence about national identity. I spoke about this a lot in Purim, and that's why the letters are so important, they were translated in different languages. The Rambam is sensitive, it's sort of an unrelated Rambam, just to show how bad it got. Source number hey, a part three is on the second page. Basically, davening was instituted in the aftermath of this de-ling, my favorite words, I hope I get it right, de-linguistification. There was a de-linguistification that necessitated standardized dominance. So the Rambam writes, Kivan Shagobi Sobhay Mehmed Muchanes in Russia, Nisarbu Beparas Fiyapan, it's not just Persian, it's also Greece, so it's a, it's a multi-century process. The Nodal and Banabaz is this massive assimilation, as you just can't solve it when Ezra comes back, you can't solve it, the, not just assimilation, but intermarriage. Nisbambo is Fasam, the language becomes discombobulated. So everyone's speaking a different language, right? When we make no model, we see how important unified language is. You can't communicate with one another, and it's hard to build a coalescent national identity. So the key on Shira, Ezra, Beitina, the last line of the Rambam, under the Tikkun of Shemana Sri So this was the origin of our Shemana So our Shemana is actually, and we call it the Diyad, it's an unfortunate response to the disintegration of language. But I don't want to talk about Tfila right now, but I just highlighted this Rambam to demonstrate how severe the delinguistification became. Now, what does Ezra do? And it's important, I think about this a lot, after all, this is the Yeshiva Harisel and Herzog event. How do we maintain the core and the spirit of our Masara while adapting it to a modern world? Because if you give up your soul, and you give up your identity, especially when it comes to Paris Hashem, then you veer. So how can you create new, I think what the Ramakal was struggling with in 1968, how do I maintain the traditional yeshiva, which she learned in, was a product of, but adapted to a new secular state, and adapted to army service, and adapted to a world that felt very different from, let's say, the traditional yeshivas that were still uh, perpetuating the old model. And it, it's really the, 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 the secret to revolution is not to break the model, but to refresh the model. To keep the model, but to refresh it with new energy, with new application, with new awareness and consciousness. 
And the thing is, it's really meant for his revolutionary. It doesn't change anything. He changes the contextual and subtextual elements. His most dramatic change is he changes the font. Because that old Sanskrit font was either less identifiable to people, less unique, it didn't capture some of the experiences of the past 70 years. So when we open a Sefer Torah, we're reading Ezra's font. That is not the font of the original Sefer Torah, which is written in more of a Sanskrit language. So the content remains the same. But the shell and the form, as we would call it, is altered. And he doesn't just change the form of the font, he changes the form of this highly iconic moment of reading for the Sefer Torah. So first of all, he gathers everyone in the square of the first Rosh Hashanah back. He and Nehemiah, source number base, Mark 3. They gather in front of the Sharmayim, which is probably somewhere in Ir David, right near Dover, York. Taking tour, if they reclaim Ir David, you'll see the Sharmayim in the area of the square where they probably gather. But if he has a coin as a Torah with an alcohol, may Ishviyadi Shabbat Chomevim Lishmoa. This is very, very reminiscent of Hakiel, men, women, anyone who can listen, and they read from the Torah. Namely, every time they enter Eretz Yisrael, we need a public recital of the Torah. So as Moshe schedules that recital of our recent miracle, that is a reinstatement of our Sifai, Ezra schedules it at the Sharmah, in the first Moshe Hashanah back. And there's the Shem, I imagine, when the Shemach comes, we'll probably gather for some mass reading of the Torah. Because our entry point there is to us to be signaled and justified by Torah. The form in this country, that's for the people of Hashem. And the people of Hashem must be accepted in Sarah, Sarah D. To this land has to be reaffirmed as we enter Eretz Yisrael. So he gathers them, but the, his recital is described by the end of that section, it's the beginning of the next page. They read from the Torah, So my extra words here. They read from the Torah, but they add Miforash, logic, they understand it better. The Gemara Megillah unpacks all these words without getting into the nitty-gritty details. We would call them subtextual elements, cantillation, grammar, targum interpretation. So the Torah is the same, but now they need it to be interpreted in art school, in English Steinsatz. They need interpretation from that moment onward. Targum incorporates itself as part of the public prayer. And those of you who are in Yemenite, been in three Yemenite meeting, you actually go to Targum, Targum up this thing inside cantillation, grammatical pauses, grammatical elements, then stood Torah well enough in the first day of Sabbath to not require the musical accompaniment, to not require the grammatical, they maybe were able to read it in ways that defy grammatical structure, they read it in multiple ways, but now grammar is crucial, and it leads to all the root call the trump and the language, the musical language of the Torah. So Ezra becomes the modifier, not the not the revolutionary, he modifies because he realizes that national identity is different. It's a powerful status. I want you to take a moment, a pregnant pause. So much of, I'm in the throes of trying to write a book with the Ulam, and I think there's a consciousness that we need to develop that hasn't been explored before. We have been through rules. All of a sudden, we're thrust into this experience with no roadmap. Because, by definition, very few, especially non Kabbalistic works, call this kind of thing about Ulam. And one of the changes of Google is how do we view people? How do we view our identity? People are just very different. Living in the shelter where everyone's from, and the one person who decides to be an apostate is excommunicated and sent off into the wilderness. But now all of a sudden, our definition of people is changing. And part of redemption is for ways of people. What does it mean to be a people? Sorry, I mean, people are religious, are religious, religion is a spectrum, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very different process. 
until we get that right, redemption can't roll forward. Redemption requires itself. It's not just think about my relationship with the first farm, but has redemption changed the game from where I am as a Jew and what my Jewish family is built upon? As a Jew, it's a more experience. And he's staring down the issue of language. And language is an impediment to Torah, just as it's an impediment. Or language, language handicap is an impediment to Talmud Torah, but it's also an impediment to national identity. Okay? Now, let's fast forward from, I guess, we'll call it the early 6th century CE. Let's fast forward about 800 years. Over those intervening 800 years, essentially, the largest intellectual supernova to ever occur exploded on the human sea. We call that Tarashivah. Just to go back and to see these people who mastered Torah to the degree of our Tanayim in particular, and they're early on Marayim, but actually we'll stick to the Tanayim, the Tanayim period. But these were people who lived in the post-prophetic era, so there's no longer prophecy, but their mastery of Torah was so vast and so tenacious that they achieved paraprophetic knowledge. They operated at a level that we can't reach. They, 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 they wasn't just the math and the X's and O's. They were able to reach levels and they'll build columns and they studied Sefer Yitzira. So even though there was no direct revelation, they were able and they spoke to Elohim in those terms. So, and they built the system of Tarshav al-Pathras. But now things are changing. History is pressing. And the Jewish people have lost the base on the fish. And even more traumatic in some ways, in many ways, in losing the base of Mikdash was the fall of Beta and the dispirited dash expectations that had been raised for the year, and perhaps this would also be. Remember, Beta happened 70 years, Barkovka rebellion happened 70 years after the base of Mikdash is destroyed. So I mean, that's one period. And we'll assume the first one was 70, maybe the next one was 70. Who's to know? Big 2000. The fall of Barkovka signaled that this would be the long version of Galaxies and not the short version. That's why the Asar Rugemalf is such a big deal. Because when they're mutilated and mercilessly executed, it signaled to Chazal, right? There were two signals of the gods, one in the year 131 and the year 1096. That's where we read about each of them with Tishabah. 130 is Bar Kokhba, it signals to be a very dark odyssey. And then 1096, when the Crusades begin, it signals that now formalized Christian led anti-Semitism is going to devour the next millennium. So you have to see these as signposts in the dollars, and that's what makes such a big deal about them. With about they're not just events. They're events that the onlookers were, were, were um, evocative or connotative of how this dollars is unfolding. So there's a lot of depression, and it's hard to learn Torah, and no one can live in Shalom, and everyone's been relocated up north to Tzipari. A few people have escaped to Kisari, and they're friendly with the Romans, who are not occupying Kisari, which is a little bit report. And people are forgetting Torah. So the Gemara doesn't really fill us in. The Gemara just talks about source number base, part four. It sounds like they were lazy. Sounds like, I don't think lazy, they forgot the one truth. There isn't one truth. They just weren't able to unify the disparate truths. And it seemed like they were irreconcilable. One they were lazy, I forgot the other approach. They knew all the approaches, but they were they appeared to be irreconcilable rather than integrated. Uh, as you, uh, people are older than soon, think about your ability as you grow older to integrate ideas which in the past seemed disparate. Whether they're ideas or traits or viewpoints. So when you're young, everything seems black and white and binary and in or out, yes or no. As your mind becomes more supple and your nuanced thinking becomes more advanced, you say, you know, they're not as different as I thought, and you can hold both ends of the stick together. So they lost that ability and it appeared to be irreconcilable dichotomous ideas. Now, Rashi, though, says it's not just that they had a fit of intellectual um, intellectual degradation. 
Rashi says it's because of the Shiva. So it's not the Gimel. We talk all the Shiva, big Zeros, and he goes in the land. You feel no power when you're running from the Romans, when you're being murdered and massacred. It's not just they were lazy, but they were facing in, 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 in indescribable conditions. And at that point, a great man, one of the great, great heroes in Al-Nasar, Yudanasi, decided to make a change. Now, who is this person, Yudanasi? Well, he may have been born, ironically, during the fall of Bakach. The Gemara says, Mishamesu v'yakiva nela Rebbe. Now, does that mean that the minute the Kiva died, Rebbe was born? The day he died, he was executed, he was born? Probably not. But we're around the same period. And again, Chazal saw this as indicative of a passing of the torch. But it wasn't just the passing of the torch. Because as Rebbe grew to be an adult, let's position his birth around 130 CE, a little bit earlier, 130. It's about a debate about four or five years, not major. Man becomes an adult, and all of a sudden, the Romans and the Jewish people reconcile. And a period of harmony and peaceful relations replace the wars, the atrocities, and hostilities. And Rebbe is instrumental, because he's very close with his counterpart, Antoninus. So it's not just a general era of harmony, but Rebbe is part of that reconciliation, part of that big time for And Rebbe also consolidates power, which is a very, very underrated part of understanding who Rebbe was. He was in charge of the Sanhedrin, and you don't have to learn much Gemara to study how throughout history there was a very brittle relationship between some of the members of the Sanhedrin and some of the Rishkulusans and the Nasus, Rebbe had now consolidated the Sanhedrin. So now was this perfect storm, as we would say. This perfect storm, as the Gemara says, source number nine, Milos Moshe, the Ad Rebbe, Lomatsanu Taro that's a very, very ambitious statement. Between Moshe and Rebbe, we never found a moment that was fertile enough to not just make slight modifications to Torah, but as we're going to do large, whole-scale changes in the methodology of study. Because he was politically empowered, because it was a harmonious moment, because he was such a common because he was very humble, by the way. And those of you who are living in Dafyomi, we're about to get to the description, maybe about to the, the description of his deathbed scene and the eulogies about his a very, very humble person. So he's very, it displaces his own ego. Anyway, it's an major change. Before Rebbe, it was permiss- it was forbidden to write Tarashidata. It should remain a world tradition for all sorts of reasons that I don't want to dive into right now. But if you started to, if you started to write a Gemara, you're shit out of the room. Now, when I say it's an Isra, it means an Isra, one of the Kaira Nisra. You're not violating this possibly that possible. It's forbidden. It's not the way I intend. But for the same matter, by the way, you are not allowed to cite a Pasuk in the Torah without reading it from the Torah. So the Ram Shabbat the Yatar Shalom and Baalpeh, the Ram Shabbat Yatar Shalom and There's a real dichotomy between two different parts of Torah. And this was strictly enforced. And while we get to get to the Margit and Dafyama, the Mark talks about when you write even a few words, the Tar Shabbat you have to put the Sirtar, which is the way we write an actual Sirtar Torah. And Rabbi said, this is just simply unsustainable. People just can't learn this way. 
Remember, there were earlier modifications. Those of you who know the Gemara Megillah, Kabbalah, they used to stand when they went. No one could sit when they went. And you know, made a because at that point it was just too difficult. But okay, that those are slight, slight changes. Here he changed the methodology. He actually wrote Torah Shabbat for the first time. And of course, he allowed Torah Shabbat to be recited without when according to something to you, without constantly opening a safer or even opening a safer car. And this is a what we would call a violation of Torah to support Torah. So it's number five, the Gemara says, Kiva below Etchar, so Rebbe interpreted the Pasuk cited in source A, Eid Lazel, Lashem, Heferu Torah Necha. There's an inner conundrum here. To serve Hashem by violating Torah, Eid Lazel, Lashem, Heferu Torah Necha. Hachinami, Kiva below Etchar, Eid Lazel, Lashem, Heferu Torah Necha. And it took someone of Rebbe's caliber to pull up a ship like that. Well, all the ships I'm describing tonight, experientially, this is the greatest ship. Because it snaps at the prohibition. You're overdone the prohibition. It's actually us there to write down version of that. So as it changed the fonts, Rebbe changed the style of the word Torah. And it was accepted by all. All, all these changes are only valid if they're accepted by our people. And Rebbe had almost an immediate rubber stamp because he was so widely acclaimed. He was so horribly approved because it was clear that this was a moment in the history of Torah. Okay. So that's shift number four. Let's see if we can make it to the finish line and get all six shifts uh, before, the, before the final time. Okay, so now we talked about Rebbe's shift, let's call it uh, early third century. So now we're gonna fast forward 1,200 years. 1,200 years to the period of the Shulchan Aruch, 16th century, okay? Now, Shulchan Aruch pulls off two major shifts. First of all, very underrated, he maps Torah. If you were to ask someone in, let's say, the 9th century, how many regions of Torah are there? You would have said 60, because that's how many Mesechus there were. Now, that's a very, very clumsy mapping of Torah. 60, we all know that there aren't 60, and some of them could be combined to one another, and some of them bleed into one another. It's not really tight. Rebbe's was more meandering, stream of consciousness, recording conversations. Those are 60 very, very loose packs. Those of you who work in IT, you need a tab. Tags have to be specific, right? The, the hashtags on Twitter, be specific, so we can find it. These are very, very poor tags, but that wasn't really his purpose. Miraculously, the Rambam, in the 12th century, he remapped the entirety of power of the 14 zones, the Akhazaka. And what's so stunning about it is you have to know everything before you can have anything. And that's what made the Rambam's knowledge of Torah so stunning. It would be like going up in a helicopter and looking down at the entire country and saying, okay, we'll draw a line and separate this region. But you don't know where the regions are, your mapping is off. Your mapping is in proportion. And that's how well the Rambam knew Torah. I, I had that feeling with the book he said. I was the same caliber as the Rambam. But he knew Torah at such a global level, I felt that he was looking down at the entire system and picking. Wasn't it? Most people, you should respond to a circuit. There's a circuit, there's a theorem, there's a reason, you have a great idea. I thought Ramar was describing topics, and just intuitive topics by looking down, I compare it to essentially putting a thousand pieces of Lego into a box and looking down at, oh, this is a good piece, this is a good piece, this is a good piece, let's build a castle. And he's building castles out of nowhere with us, and the Ramam obviously saw it that way, and he remapped out the 14 zones. The 14 zones is fairly concise, but it isn't easy to remember all the 14. The Torah precedes the Shulchan Arach. The Torah is a child of the Rosh. And the Torah maps the world of Halacha, at least, which had been stripped after we lost the days of Mikdash, into four zones. 
the Zon of Arachayim, the Zon of Eben Ezer, the Zon of Hashem Mishpat, and the Zon of Yerba. And that, those are the zonings that, I, I don't know how popular that zoning would have been if the Shemun hadn't adopted it, the Yerzakar hadn't adopted it. So we all know this is the zoning of the Shemun it's really the zoning of the Torah. But it takes a creative mind to think about not just how to respond to particular bits of information, but how to think systemically, how to think broadly. How, how does the system operate? What are the different problems of the system? But the major shift of the Shulchan Aruch was to standardize halacha. Now, why do we standardize halacha? What were the two historical pressure points that, that propelled the shift? Well, one we all know, 1492, the dispersal of Spanish Jewry across the entire globe. Now Spanish Jews were arriving with their three basic routes, through Europe, through the Balkans, Greece, Israel, and then they went down to the lands of Arabia. So the, the Spanish traditions were more or less similar to the Arab Jews than the Arab lands, but all of a sudden, all these Spanish Jews arriving in France and arriving in uh, Vienna, and arriving in Vienna, but arriving in France, arriving in Germany, and all of a sudden, they bring their new Menhagen, and they look down upon the Frenchmen. You follow, this is how you say, you know, like, hey, they take the Lula Vuitton, or Rambam told us to take the Lula Vuitton, or Rambam, and so, and there are major fistfights that break out in Shul. So all of a sudden, halacha can't be left to the discretion of each and every local personal rabbi. The second also overlooked aspect of the 14th century, 15th century, that causes the Shulchanach to standardize halacha in the 16th century is Johannes Gutenberg and the printing press. Because before the printing press, it was prohibitively expensive to publish anywhere. So there was a natural self-selection process. Who could get subsidized? It was very expensive. People would cower. Now, any time they can hear, you publish their safer. So you have an inflation of sperm. You have many sperm making the rounds and the devaluation of anyone's safer. No one knows the difference between Rashi and the Ramban or some local safer that some guy published to know what he's talking about. So it's, it, it, it's, it's a very chaotic system into which the Shohanar enters. And he feels the need to standardize Allah. And he writes about this, not a person for us, but source number Allah in Sakama, by Yiki Arthur Lamar Hayamin, Horaknu. We've been poured from one vessel to another, and he mentions the, the historical pressure, very similar, let's say, to what Rebbe was facing um, uh, 1,200 years earlier, earlier during the Roman persecution. Now, what's interesting is that he standardizes halacha by picking a panel of three major, major Rishon, the Rif, the Rambam, and the Rush. Whatever those three said about halacha will, be the, will yield the halachic verdict. If it's not unanimous, of course, and the halacha is clear. If it's a two-to-one majority, we'll follow the majority. And many were opposed to the very concept of standardizing. I'll talk about it in Marshall in a moment. But some were actually in favor of standardized halacha, but not one so biased towards Spartan. Because his panel consisted of two and a half Spartan. The rabbi was a Sparty, the riff was a Sparty, the rush. Started off his life in France as a Talmud of the Mary Rundberg, but had to run away, not to face the same fate as the Mary Rundberg. So he ran to Spain, that was roundly accepted. So he spent the first part of his life as an Ashkenazi, second part of his life as a Sparty. So many were in favor of a systematized method, but opposed to this panel, because this is too Sparty. But someone like the Maharshal or Shlomo Luria, who lives in Lublin, who's Polish, the Polish Jews had already begun to arrive as early as the 16th century. So he, he claims that that's not the intention of halacha. Halacha is not meant to be standardized. It's meant to be every Rav looking into the infinity of Torah, choosing amongst the infinite options, essentially, what the Marshal was saying, 
as we were saying in our terminology, halach is meant to be pluralistic. As long as you remain within the orbit of halachic logic, it's meant to allow for multiple approaches, each of which is valid. And no one can contest that point, because that's what halacha was until the 16th century. But the Yosef, the Yosef about the pressures of history are such that we have to create a standardized halacha, and that's why both halacha sheds. After the Beis Yosef, after the Shabbat was accepted, Beis Yosef was the original version, Beis Yosef was the cliff notes, Shabbat was the cliff notes, we studied the cliff notes, it takes us a lifetime just to study the cliff notes, but in our day, Allah begins and ends more or less with the Shabbat It could be interpreted differently, it could be applied differently, but for us to leapfrog the Shabbat and say, well, I found the Rishon 300 years earlier, this is even the Shabbat there are rare instances. Be sure, it's not a monolithic experience but it creates an entire different standard upon which we operate. And that's how halacha has shifted. But not just halacha has shifted, but the study of Torah has shifted. It took 200 years for people to start writing Perushim on Jazz, because there was such an iconic, transformative text and document that people started writing Shukhanah. So for 200 years, the major works in the 16th and 17th century were about Shukhanah. Even works that were communicated in their logic were still written about the Shukhanah, like themselves in the Nisibos, so they're playing off the Shukhanah. Let me just mention very quickly the final shift, as I mentioned it earlier, and then we'll conclude the share. And that's the shift of Kabbalah and Hasidus, which I combined into one, obviously. Kabbalah is contemporaneous of the Shulchanan, it's in the 16th century, the Ariya Kadosh, and the entire cadre of Kabbalists and Svat. And uh, 200 years later, um, Hasidus, which adopts Kabbalah, applies it a little bit differently, but each response is to apocalyptic moments, in particular the Spanish uh, Inquisition, the Spanish expulsion, which leads to an air of messianism, which leads, of course, to Kabbalah, which speaks about cosmic redemption, not just redemption of people, but redemption of the entire planet. Kabbalah had always been studied throughout history. The worst term you could ever use to describe Kabbalah is mysticism, because that presumes it's not a logical experience. It is logical, it's just not, it's not empirical. I can't prove it through scientific tools. But when I received the information, the Ramban sat there and studied Kabbalah with a pencil, writing about Kabbalistic ideas, the same way you and I write about math. Math I can prove, Kabbalah I can't prove. It's not empirical, but it is logical, it's not mystical. The better word to use for Kabbalah would be cosmology. It describes the cosmos. It describes how Hashem created the world and how His infinite, eternal, non-physical essence continues to sustain the world. And non equivalent just accepts the gap. I don't know. And accepting the gap, I submit myself to a bit of clarity, that's called Yerashem. And the Kubel says, let me try to map how Hashem, who is infinite, eternal, turns into this piece of paper. How does Hashem create a piece of paper? I'm trying to bridge the gap, and it creates greater intimacy and greater awareness of my relationship with Hashem. I'm not assuming distance, and I don't know. I'm trying to bridge that gap and bridge the experience. And it was always studied. Lurianic Kabbalah, as it's called, the Kabbalah, the Riyakarish becomes much more activist Kabbalah. You don't just study it, but you can actually affect the system. Namely, it becomes bi-directional. We're not just affected by influences in upper worlds. We can reverse the process, and our activities can affect the cosmological process of, of Kabbalah. So that's really the finish of there. It used to be something we study, now it becomes something that we actively trigger. What happens is, all that leads to a lot of excitement, but that excitement goes off the rails in the late 17th century with the Shabbat And that leads to a complete, probably one of the darkest periods in Jewish history, the late 17th century, early 18th century, Golis is long, Golis is, is uh, laborious, we just had this failed Messiah, he revealed himself to be a Muslim, and Hasidus enters that stage, highly, highly suspected of still being Sabbatianist, but it restores that belief that Hashem is still close with us, wants to redeem us, 
that is not just close to us, but as I just wanted to quote, it's hard to find signature statements of Kabbalah and Kosevus. These are more systemic. It's not hard to find the one key line, the one money shot. But if this one money shot of Kosevus, it's the Tanya describing that Hashem didn't just create us, but create us in His image, but create us chelak and lokam imal mamish. The part of Hashem that breathed into us, which means I can never escape my presence of Hashem because I can't escape myself. If you don't have Kosevus, you can run away from Hashem. He may see you, but you can create distance. If Hashem is within you, not just created you in His image, it's pretty hard to escape Hashem. No matter how hard you'll try, you can't run away from yourself. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks so much.